I am Lisa Dale Miller, for those of you who have not met me before. This year, Philip said to me, how would you like to do a few in a row? So I'm actually doing two in a row in the next two weeks, and then in November, I get to do it again. And the great thing about this is, many of you know, I jam-pack a lot in, so I get to be more relaxed tonight. And I thought that I would talk tonight on Dharma and love which is a very tricky topic. We're going to extend the conversation into next week, too. I'm going to begin with a quote, which some of you may have seen, those of you who get the Dharma announcement. And this quote is from Otto Kernberg, who was a very well-known object relations psychoanalyst. He said, love is the revelation of the other person's freedom. I love that. So in these two nights of Dharma talks, I'm going to chart a path toward that beautiful aspiration. And actually, I'm going to extend the aspiration to include ourselves. So I'm going to rephrase Dr. Kernberg's quote, love is the revelation of freedom through a mutual conscious opening of the awakened heart. So that is how I have revisioned this. So tonight we're actually going to discuss personal love and explore how to skillfully navigate its tragic yet intoxicating nature. And I do truly mean tragic and intoxicating. And then next week we're going to discuss the cultivation of the awakened heart. We will go there a little bit tonight. And the awakened heart's spontaneous expression as boundless love. So stay tuned for that. So the modern vision of love, with its hyper-insistence upon romance, true love, soulmates, contextualizes freedom as a radical loss of self-autonomy through an overpowering ecstatic experience of the other. And just to illustrate this, I thought I would quote a few lyrics from popular music <laughs> that describe this experience. So hold on. I don't know. Maybe this has never been done at Sangha. Uh, from the inimitable Blondie, Call Me, which is one of my favorite songs. I'm stuck without you. I can't live without you. What more can I say? I love you and everything you do. I need you. Don't ever say we're through. I love you. So that's one example. My second and last example is from a song by Macy Gray called I Try. I may appear to be free, but I'm just a prisoner of your love. I may seem all right and smile when you leave, but my smiles are just a front. I try to say goodbye and I choke. I try to walk away, and I stumble. Though I try to hide it, it's clear. My world crumbles when you are not near. It even rhymes. <laughs> I know I can relate to these sentiments, and maybe many of you can as well, especially in the early stages of falling in love, at the beginning of a relationship when everything is so new, 
so fresh, poignant, and intense. Personal love, particularly romantic love, is a very powerful intoxicant for the human mind. And neurobiologically speaking, we literally get high on love. And we all know what the Buddha had to say about intoxicants <laughs> and their effect on the mind. The Buddha asked us to make an effort to develop dispassion, a conscious cooling of the passions. This was the Buddhist prescription for a happy life. He said, there are two kinds of happiness, the happiness of the senses and the happiness of renunciation. But the happiness of renunciation is the higher of the two. Well, this is certainly doable in a monastic context. But how in the world do householders like us reconcile renunciation of personal love with the fulfillment of the beautiful desire to love and be loved in this life? It's a very important question for us as practicing Buddhists in the world. You know, this is one of the examples, really, of how Dharma and the West is a big experiment. You know, Dharma in the East, it, it's not like it is here. In the East, people grow up with this, they practice sila, they practice dana, they are giving, giving to the temples. This is what they do. This is how they practice. And then at some point later in their lives, when they've had their life, then they decide they're going to sit down and start practicing meditation. And here in the West, many of us started practicing meditation when we were teenagers. And we've been doing this and having our lives, like Westerners, simultaneously. So this whole idea of the passion of life and the cooling of passion and how to bring them together is so poignant for us as Western Buddhists, I think. And it's all a matter of skill. And frankly, many of us would go so far as to say that to love is an act of courage, one that tempers us like fire tempers steel. I can certainly attest to the power of love in strengthening my resolve and molding me into a better human being through direct contact with its tragic nature. Not so much direct contact with the bliss of love, but truly with the loss, the suffering, the having to let go, the sacrifice. Those are the things that really I think love becomes a vehicle for such courage. David White has a poem called Fire in the Earth, and there's a part of this poem that expresses this so well. He says, I want to know if you know how to melt into that fierce heat of living, falling toward the center of your longing, 
I want to know if you are willing to live day by day with the consequence of love and the bitter, unwanted passion of your sure defeat. If you are willing to live day by day with the consequence of love and the bitter, unwanted passion of your sure defeat. He speaks of total abandonment, of cowardice, in favor of a headlong dive into love's passion, even when it surely means the devastation of ultimately facing love's inability to fully satisfy our bottomless pit of desire. This is certainly a paradoxical form of renunciation, precisely the opposite of monastic restriction. And yet, this is the sacrifice romantic love requires of us, to die to it fully. So what's a Buddhist to do? What we always do as Buddhists, we must try to deeply understand personal love so we can truly know it fearlessly, uncompromisingly. And through this knowing, rest in the continual arising, residing, and passing away of love's myriad manifestations. Letting ourselves be taught as only the great teacher, love, can teach us about the true nature of lust, jealousy, hatred, delusion, pride, clinging, clinging, and more clinging. Love truly inspires clinging, don't you think? Yes. It is our greatest teacher about clinging. In Theravadan Buddhism, lust is often seen as the main cause of the forms of suffering that I just mentioned. The Buddha actually taught in the texts, of all the worldly passions, lust is the most intense. All other worldly passions seem to follow in its path. And this is because lust always gives rise to intense clinging. Lust is also viewed in the text as the least harmful of the three poisons. The Buddha also said, lust is less blameless but hard to remove. So what the Buddha is saying here is he's admitting how natural it is to want love and how easily we get trapped in that incessant wanting to be loved. Second part of the quote. Hatred is more blamable but easier to remove than lust. So now he's saying anger is destructive, yet we often cling to angry feelings less than we actually cling to love. And the third part of the quote, delusion is very blamable and hard to remove. So ultimately, the Buddha recognizes that our very insistence upon the solidity of all objects of greed and hatred is actually the greatest impediment to awakening. So lust is pretty low down there on the totem pole. And of course, it's clear the Buddha was well aware of our human need to love and be loved. There's a wonderful parable in the Polytext, which I'm actually going to tell you right now. I get to be a little storyteller. It's called The Woman at the Well. 
Some of you may have read it before. I see some heads shaking. Ananda, the Buddha's main attendant, having been sent by the Buddha on a mission, passed by a well near a village. There he saw Pakati, a Matanga girl of low caste, standing by the well, and he asked her for water to drink. She immediately responded by saying, O Brahman, I am too humble to give thee water to drink. Do not ask any service of me, lest thy holiness be contaminated, for I am of low caste. When Ananda replied, I ask not for caste, but for water, Pakati's heart leapt joyfully, and she gave Ananda water to drink. Ananda thanked her and went away, but she followed him at a distance. Having heard that Ananda was a disciple of the Buddha, Pakati went to the Blessed One and asked, O oh Lord, help me. Let me live in the place where Ananda, thy disciple, dwells, so that I may see him and minister unto him, for I love Ananda. And the Blessed One understood the emotions of her heart. And he said, Pakati, you do not understand your own sentiments. It is not Ananda that you love, but his kindness. Accept, then, the kindness you have seen him practice, and practice it toward others. So Pakati was transformed through the power of being seen as she truly was devoid of the deluded cultural concepts normally placed upon her. Ananda practiced the kindness of pure seeing and awakened the pure love of another human being. Bhakati did not fall in love with Ananda, but it sure felt like it. Her heart awakened to love itself. So this is kind of where I'm going in these two nights, is this sort of, it's like a deconstruction. You know, the Buddha was a fabulous deconstructor. He basically was all about understanding the way the human mind works, which actually is our medicine. This is the medicine of the Buddha. You need no other medicine, truly, for almost anything that might show up for you in your life. If you can just know your mind as it is and discern wisely, what's actually happening in the mind, and what is reality, you will be just fine. So the Buddha was essentially saying, your heart is telling you this is love. And yet, what's actually happening is you are experiencing empathetic resonance, a being seen as you actually are that is so precious to your heart that you are awakening into knowing yourself as you actually are devoid of your concepts about who everyone tells you you are, your culture tells you you are, your parents, tell, whatever. Yeah? This is liberation. So how do we mere mortals awaken to love itself? When everything we are conditioned to believe about love, including our overblown expectations of love and the intense clinging and need to possess and be possessed that love often triggers, only leads us time and time again 
to the tragic recognition of our powerlessness to change love's inherent impermanence. So Western psychology has offered much theory and practice in how to cultivate healthy relationships. We have deep listening skills, which all of us who are therapists just love teaching deep listening to the couples we work with. We have nonviolent communication skills, so they can actually talk to each other and hear each other. We offer people the ability to understand their family of origin issues so that they can have a sense of when they're being triggered by their partner, oh, what does this remind me of? We also have the ability to teach people about attachment styles. Notice when they're not feeling secure in an attachment, and it might be leading to all kinds of things, like approach and avoidance. And we also have the ability to train people in how to have empathetic resonance, even in a difficult moment with someone that they love. And yet, couples still show up in my office distraught and lost when love has faded or been betrayed. The truth is that love is not a static entity. It is subject to entropy like all other phenomena. And no matter what we do, that ideal merging with another never satisfies the deepest longings in our heart for peace. Psychoanalyst Stephen Mitchell says, in matters of love, deeper, more authentic commitments can be made and maintained only with an awareness of change and transformation outside our control. Romantic commitments in love entail not a devotion to stasis, but a dedication to process in the face of uncertainty. That is a very Buddhist view of relationship. That the goal is not to stay exactly the way you are, but to recognize that everything changes and shifts. So the uncertainty of how that's going to go is a process you're going to do with someone. It's a dance. As our beloved teacher Philip likes to say, it's a dance of life and it's a dance of love. You're continually dancing with the way things shift and change. And at the end of the day, personal love really is a conundrum. When it's right, it feels so good. And when it's wrong, it causes so much wounding. One of my teachers in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, Dzogni Rinpoche, has just come out with a new book on essence love, which is what we'll be talking about next week, this more boundless aspect of love. But it's a very practical book, actually. And at one point, he writes, gradually, when we have been disappointed many times by not being fulfilled by someone else, we lose hope that we can ever experience love in any form and we withdraw from love altogether. And that is so sad. Love is such a beautiful gift to receive and to give. So again, really, it's a question of what is the most skillful way to give and receive love. So before we go to loving wisely, I have one more quote 
And this is from psychiatrist Mark Epstein, who is also a Buddhist teacher and has been for a very long time. He really puts his finger on the problem here. He says, the obstacle that com comes between lover and beloved is always clinging. And clinging is driven by the hope that someone somewhere has some kind of ultimate reality. When desire is made into an object of contemplation, so when you actually decide to have a relationship with desire, it always reveals an uncomfortable but ultimately liberating truth. We want to possess and be possessed, but nothing is substantial enough, lasting enough, permanent enough, or real enough to ultimately come through for us. So we cling to something that cannot be. We cling to a kind of being saved that just doesn't exist, even though love feels like it exists. That's the drug of love. It feels like our savior in our brain, and yet it's just another form of deluded mind. The key here is how to learn to love wisely. So let's explore that. And this, of course, is very practical advice here now from the Buddha. We don't think of the Buddha as, you know, Ann Lander, somebody who gives out love advice, do we? Well, you know, in the Pali text, the Buddha spoke of six principles of cordiality that create love and respect and conduce to helpfulness, to non-dispute, to concord, and to unity. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty good recipe to me for a great relationship. Love, respect, helpfulness, non-dispute, concord, and unity. I would take that any day. Here's the six principles of cordiality. The first three actually are very similar. The first one is bodily acts of loving kindness. The second one is verbal acts of loving kindness. And the third one are mental acts of loving kindness. We have a nice little package here. These three together call for a very active form of well-wishing for the happiness of another human being. So whatever you are doing with your body in relationship, you are well-wishing for the happiness of another. So that means ahimsa. It means non-harming. Why would you ever want to harm another human being with a body that is full of well-wishing happiness for another human being? You wouldn't. This extends to a relationship where you're actually engaging sexually with someone. You are using your body for the happiness of this other human being. So you wouldn't want to do anything that would be harmful sexually to them either. In terms of verbal acts, well, that's pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? I know many of you are therapists, and you spend a lot of time working with communication with families and couples and possibly businesses and verbal acts of loving kindness. Your speech itself brings happiness. Now, that doesn't mean that you're always saying things people like. 
but it does mean that you are using the skills of wise speech in order to be able to say things in a way that eventually, even though you might be disappointing someone in the here and the now, eventually what you are doing is saying it in a way that will not be harming to them. It may even be enlivening to them. It may awaken them. Wouldn't that be awesome? And then, of course, mental acts of loving-kindness. So we all know how powerful our thoughts are, and our thoughts are our perception. And for any of you who have ever swum even for a little bit of time in the ocean of obsession and love, or have even waited for that phone call, <laughs> you know what the mind does. It conjures up all kinds of thoughts and feelings about who you are, who they are, what could happen, this and that. And generally, almost all of that is harming. There is nothing skillful or healthy about much of that. The fourth one is sharing without reservation. Wow, sharing without reservation. That's pretty intense. What happened to setting limits and boundaries? <laughs> okay, well, the Buddha actually has a prescription for this, too. <laughs> he has the five gifts of a superior person. So the first one is giving faithfully. And that really means that you are giving in a way where you're not going to be taking something back. You have faith in your own capacity to give. So you have to be wise about what you're giving because... You can't offer something that you can't give. So you have to be faithful to who you are and what you can give. You also might want to be faithful about who you're giving to. Is that something they really need? Is this actually going to be good for them? So you, you want to be able to be discriminating. Giving respectfully. So when you offer love to another human being, you are inherently offering them respect. And I must say, that also means that you have to be holding respect for yourself. You can't just be giving away the whole store, as my grandmother used to say. <laughs> you have to be able to respect who you are. Giving at the right time is really critical. I mean, there are times in relationships when we really miss the mark on what we think people need, and it just doesn't work. So having that sense of timeliness is so important. Giving with a generous heart. What do you think that means, giving with a generous heart? Why is that different than the, I mean, clearly it's different. The Buddha wouldn't have said it. So what does that mean to you, giving with a generous heart? So giving with no expectation for return. Yes. Do you want to add something? with the right motivation. Selflessness. Yeah, there's some kind of quality of selflessness. Yes. Yes, that is so powerful. Did you all hear that? So giving without reservation, no flavor of stinginess. That's a, that is a very enlightened thing to do, actually. It's a very difficult thing, really, for the human heart, unless there's some quality of awakening in the human heart. In our culture, love is so commoditized. Do you know what I mean by that? It's such a commodity. We're on the market. We're looking for the right person. You know, we've got something to sell. 
They've got something we want. You know, you might as well be pork bellies. You know, seriously, our culture commoditizes everything, including love. So, yes, this speaks to that so beautifully. Yeah. And the last one is giving without denigration. Now, that is very powerful. In a way, this is what Ananda did. He pointed to something, and yet he didn't denigrate Pakati. He didn't say to her, yeah, I know you're of low caste, but I didn't ask you about your caste. I just wanted water. Now, that would be very denigrating. But instead, you know, he decided to be very, he actually, I think in some ways this one is last because it includes all the other ones. This total giving. And really, this actually cuts through much of our attachment to a self that is the lover, that is giving, or the self that is the loved one and is getting. It really cuts through the ego identification that is inherent sometimes in personal love. The fifth quality here of cordiality is committing to unbroken and unblemished virtues. Now, depending on which tradition of Buddhism you happen to be in, the paramis or the paramitas is where you want to go look for virtues. In our tradition, the Theravadan tradition, there are 10 of them, 10 paramis, generosity, moral conduct, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, loving-kindness, and equanimity. In some ways, you, the Buddha could just have used this alone, really, you know, without the rest of them, because it's all included here in the paramis. This sense of doing the right thing, being generous with your heart, having patience with the person you love, putting energy into the relationship, Nothing happens on its own. You know, relationships need energy. Concentration is important in a relationship. You want to be able to know what's happening. The only way you can actually know what's happening is to be there, to be present. The only way to do that is to actually pay attention. And if you pay attention with a kind of open concentration, you will be able to be skillful in your relationship no matter what. And that will give rise to wisdom, which is prajna. The final one, it's adhering to the view that leads to the complete cessation of suffering. So that means loving with the primary intention to awaken oneself and those we love through the very act of loving. So I'm just going to say that again. Loving with the primary intention to awaken oneself and those we love through the very act of loving. My last question for all of us is, how do we accomplish that? That sounds like a pretty big goal, yeah? Well, the answer is, everything is included in awareness. Now, this is a very powerful answer. So it means that even when we mess up in relationship, messing up is also included in awareness. So the awareness of messing up can actually turn things around. This is the bridge to where we're going to go next week.
this everything is included in awareness. This is the bridge to boundless love. This is how we are able to take personal love and enact personal love from the perspective of boundless love because everything is included in awareness, which means every single moment of personal love can be a moment to inspire awakening. So I am going to read a series of short quotes, and then I thought I would take questions and we would have a discussion, because this is such a kind of rich and sort of interesting area. I figure you all have a lot of wisdom to offer each other. And I'm going to use some quotes from my teachers, because frankly, my teachers are much better at expressing this kind of wisdom to you than I could ever be. The first quote is from Anam Tupton. When we can't love both the world of the manifested and the world of the unmanifested, then we are lost in a mental world of dualism. And as a consequence of that, we never see how things really are. So this is a very profound way of viewing living a human life. If you choose to renounce the manifested and say that it is not worthy of your love and care and attention, you essentially are not seeing the way things are. And it is true that the Buddha talked about two truths, a relative truth and an ultimate truth. He really did do that. And even though in the Theravadan vehicle, the ultimate truth is still impermanent, unlike some of the other Buddhist vehicles, where it isn't so expressed as, ah, this is hard to explain, but the unmanifest is not permanent, even in the other Tibetan Buddhist vehicles, and yet it is not like the same kind of impermanence as manifested impermanence. Some, maybe November, I will actually teach on that for, for two nights. That might be an interesting thing to teach on. So he's basically saying, the Buddha asked us to go beyond dualism, self and other, self and object. He asked us to do this. He asked us to come into this realization of emptiness, of the co-arising and interdependence of all things that we are not separate. And Anam Tupton is essentially saying, in order to truly love, you must accept that you're going to have to love the manifested world as well as the unmanifested world and not separate them. So that's one part of the bridge. The next quote is from Ajahn Sumedho, a wonderful Theravadan teacher. Ajahn Sumedho said, awareness includes emotional states, no matter what they are. Whether you're happy or sad, elated or depressed, confused or clear, confident or doubtful, jealous or frightened, greedy or lustful, it includes all of those by noticing in a way that is not critical. We're not saying you shouldn't have lustful emotions or anything like that. 
we're not making moral judgments because we are using sati prajana, which is mindfulness and clear comprehension together. It's a matter of being patient with all of this. That's so important in real love, isn't it? Not trying to control or make any problem out of it. We just relax and open to things and allow them to change on their own. We're not trying to control or make any problem out of it. We just relax and open to things and allow them to change on their own. Imagine what an incredibly healthy relationship you could have with your family, your coworkers, your partner, if you were just willing to not make such big problem out of it. And let it be. Just relax and let it go on its own. So the last quote in this little section is by Zogchen Panlop, who is an absolutely wonderful teacher. If he ever comes back to the Bay Area, it's been so long since he's been here. He's a Mahamudra teacher and a Dzogchen teacher. He sort of has both traditions. Um, he's lived in the West about 25 years. He came here when he was about 18. And he wrote a book, for any of you who are interested, it's called Rebel Buddha. And it is a phenomenal way of explaining the Dharma from a completely Western viewpoint, written by a Tibetan Buddhist teacher. And it's so good. It's just so good. He's a very interesting guy. He's also an incredible artist, among the other things that he does. He lives up in Seattle. They have a great sangha up there. So he says, there is no need to suppress emotion. There is nothing wrong with its appearance. Just simply experience the emotion. Neither reject it or accept it. The raw energy is simply experienced without any thought without any labeling. The great Indian yogi Saraha said that an agitated mind, if left alone, becomes peaceful. The problem here is not the passion. Now, I have heard Ajahn Sumedho say this many times. The problem is not desire. The problem is that we are not letting desire be desire and passion be passion. It's very similar to what Ajahn Sumedho says. It's not a problem. Don't make a problem out of it. Just relax, open to desire, and allow desire to change you and change itself and be with what's arising skillfully. This is the recipe. And this is the recipe for personal love. This is the way to be skillful in your life with personal love. Be awake. Know what's happening. Relax. Rest in it and act skillfully. To end, what I'm going to do is make the little bridge here with one quote. And this is a taste of what's sometimes called transcendent love or boundless love. And this is a quote from Adu Rinpoche. And actually today, Anam Tupton was teaching over at his Sangha and he told a story, which I know is actually about Ajahn Rinpoche, uh, because I've read Ajahn Rinpoche's uh, book where he tells this, this story. Um, I'm going to read the quote, and then I will tell you the story. So Ajahn Rinpoche says, Once you know the nature of the painful moment, then it is not that suffering is some entity 
that is separate from the mind in any way whatsoever. If you know the nature of mind, then as it is said, suffering is actually an ocean of bliss. That suffering in its essence is awareness, which is bliss. Otherwise, not only is suffering painful, there is an emotional reaction to it, which makes it even worse. And you are tormented not only by the suffering, but also from being emotional about it. That is very good advice. And yet, it points to transcendent love. It says, the essence of love is bliss, even when love shows up painful. It's still awareness. It's still awareness. And I, I will just end by enticing you for next week by telling you this little story that Anam Tupton told this morning. That he said one of the two marks of enlightenment is when you, you're finally afraid of your mind. <laughs> then he explained. He said, well, Adju Rinpoche was one of, when he was young, he actually was uh, captured. He tried to escape Tibet, but the Chinese, cap the Chinese army captured him. And he was put into a prison camp for almost 15 years. There were many other Rinpoches, actually, in the prison camps. So even though they were doing hard labor every single day, uh, they managed to actually have a sangha in the camp, and they managed to actually teach each other and share teachings. And one of the things that Adjur Rinpoche said was, he was afraid in the prison camp, but he was not afraid of what you would think. You know, most of us would be in a prison camp like that, and we would be afraid of what's going to happen to our body and how they're going to hurt us and how will we ever survive and all this stuff. No, actually, his greatest fear was his mind because he knew that it was entirely possible that at some point he would, because of his mind, lose the capacity to hold his captor, the, his, the prison guards, with the tolerance and compassion that they deserved as human beings. That's a little invitation to come next week when we jump into this quality of love. Comments, questions, anything you might have. I have a question and a comment. My question is, I'd love for you to define what the unmanifest is. Yes. When you say we have to love the manifest, I can understand what the manifest is, but I'm kind of lost in what the unmanifest is. And my comment goes back to when you first opened the talk. Mm -hmm. You said something that even if you're in a 50-year relationship, eventually you're going to lose love. Yeah. I remember a saying, I think it's from the Jewish Bible, you know, the Old Testament, but mm -hmm. it says love is stronger than death. Yes. And the idea that people can die that you love, but the love survives it. Yes, of course. And so the idea that the love you're receiving may go away, but the love that you're giving can last beyond the relationship, whether it ends yes. in death or choice or any other circumstance. Yeah. It's true. And of course, this also points to the boundless aspect of love. The personal aspect of love is the attachment to the fact of the person being there with you. That is the thing we think we lose, is the actual person, their attention, their presence. That thing is the thing that we do lose, no matter what. Death takes that away from us. And yet, this boundless quality of love, which frankly, to me, is unmanifested. 
the source of that kind of enduring love that is unconditioned by any circumstances, that is the unmanifest. So you answered your own question, actually. I don't understand that answer. The, what all things arise, even in the Abhidharma, there is something called bhavanga, which is a gap between all, pheno- all thoughts, all phenomena. There is a, a thing they point to. They say it's impermanent, but it is unmanifest. It is, it's, the bhavanga never manifests. It is an empty gap of just store awareness. That's it. It's the ground of being. It's the ground of awareness. That is the unmanifest. All things manifest from it, but that itself is, ne- and every religion will point to that. So that's what we're supposed to love, that ground of being before anything is manifest from it? You can't possibly love that. It's not an object. It's objectless. That's object what I don't less. understand when you said we're, we're called on to love the manifest ah, and the unmanifest. Well, what, what Anam Tupton is talking about is our idealization of that. Spiritual people tend to want to renounce the world and it's all bad in favor of this, this big, unmanifested, absolute thing, yeah? So they, they, they put a lot of attention on that and they think the world is bad. So there's this quality of love and appreciation for all of it, that there is no separation between these two things since all things arise out of that source of being, that source of phenomena. Does that make sense? Yes, thank you. Wow, that was easy. (laughs) Darn. Yes? I wonder whether you go back to your approach to Mother's inquiry and manifestation of it. Yes. We might understand them better, given what you said. I would love to do that. That is a beautiful invitation. Thank you. Okay, so Otto Kernberg's quote was, love is the revelation of the other person's freedom. So it's very beautiful because he's essentially pointing at selflessness. He's pointing at those six qualities of cordiality in a way. That you are in the project of love, of loving someone else in order to liberate them. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? What I did was I said, love is the revelation of freedom through a mutual conscious opening of the awakened heart. So there's however many beings are involved in this particular loving exchange, both of them have this in mind for each other and for themselves. There is the recognition that we have to be responsible for our own awakening, our own impulse to awaken our heart into liberation. We have to have our own liberation in our mind. It's a very important thing. If we only have the liberation of the other, somehow something for me gets lost. It, I don't, I'm not sure why, but it just seemed to me as though it was important to include ourselves in our desire to have love be a container for this kind of freedom. So the practice, loving kindness and compassion. Yes. Aside from practicing it for yourself, you need other beings of some kind to be there to practice loving kindness and compassion for you. 
Yes. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it all gets, you know, without other beings to love, in other words, without other beings to love, how can you, how can you become a better being yourself? You are absolutely correct, and it's a very Mahayana Buddhist view that ultimately any awakening one is seeking it for oneself, you're only doing that in order to awaken all other beings. It's, it isn't just about your own awakening. So what you say is absolutely true. And this is what I pointed to in terms of the courage aspect of love, that if we if we renounce the whole project of personal love because we think it doesn't fit within the container of the precepts or our Buddhist ideas, we are missing an opportunity, as you say, to awaken other beings and awaken ourselves simultaneously. So I agree with you. And, and you know, to me, as, as you, I think it was a great point you made that our culture from pop songs to marketing, you know, love is a commodity. You're my girlfriend, I buy you this, you do this, or vice versa. And a lot of times when we pick a mate, it's almost like, you know, I need someone like my mate. And so to me, it's just, that's, that's a very, it's an easy thing to say, but it's, it's, it's seems hard, you know. Well, to, that is why Sakyaditi, the whole thing of me and mine, yeah? This is the first fetter. That is why, because even love is subject to sakyatiti, the delusion that there is a me and that there is mine at all. There is no such thing. There is no self. So how, what's there is the nothing to own. Have a mate, what's the best way to be with that person? Well, I think there was a lot of wisdom here tonight about how to skillfully navigate this very interesting conundrum. Personal love, that, that thing that we do where we see someone special and we say, you are beyond all, and yet we know that all beings are equally worthy of our love. And maybe not that kind of love. So that's why next week we're going to discuss boundless love because our human heart is actually very complex. It has terrific complexity and we can have this kind of pointed personal love that you were discussing with children. People have that, you know, it's like my kid, I couldn't possibly love any other kid more than I love, you know, my kid. People say this all the time and you think, why? But you know why. It, it's their child, of course. That is why. It's natural. It's absolutely natural. So this is why we're doing two weeks because we are basically running around in this wonderful conundrum, this paradox. We are geared to have preference, and yet we are practicing a tradition of non-preference. So I look forward to seeing any and all of you who wish to continue the journey next week. <laughs>